The Art of Hiding by J. M. Rupert. Chapter 15. The Enemy Among Us Nan was awoken later in the morning by Dr Beamish gently lifting her head from her father's hand as the man of medicine checked on the progress of his patient. While massaging the crick in her neck due to sleeping in an awkward position, Nan noticed that Norbert was in the same place that he'd been when she'd fallen asleep. He'd obviously kept watch over Russell all night. She smiled at her uncle gratefully, which he returned, and they both waited anxiously to receive the doctor's verdict. He was all too familiar for Nan and brought back the memories of her father lying in hospital a few years previously. Dr Beamish removed the stethoscope from his ears and turned to them. Well, he survived the night, which of course is a good sign, and I had my doubts that he would manage even that. But I'm afraid that's the only good news I can offer you. The old man informed them with harsh honesty as he rubbed his short, stubby beard. There's no noticeable change or relief in his condition. He's got no better, but he's also got no worse, so draw hope from that. The same treatment applies, keep him warm and try administering honey to his lips every few hours. If he swallows even the smallest amount, it can only help. Understood? Norbert and Nan nodded. And how are you feeling today, young lady? Any delayed effects? Nothing. I'm fine. Most uncommon the doctor declared. I've never known anything like it. You're either a miracle or the answer to our problems. I wouldn't mind running a few tests. How's Gilbert? interrupted Norbert, keen not to have his niece become the subject of any medical experiments. Now that is better news, replied Dr Beamish. Gilbert's regained consciousness, and apart from stiff joints and an overwhelming desire for sleep, our landlord is in fairly good shape. We'll talk about these tests later, Hannah. I'll come back to check on Mr Elliot this evening. Neither Tristan nor Hartley, still asleep on his brother's chest, were disturbed in their slumber as the doctor left the room. Only then did Nan spot that her uncle Adrian had gone from the seat he had occupied the night before. Adrian's left to get some rest, Norbert said, seeing the direction of Nan's gaze. And Tristan and Hartley have hardly stirred while you snoozed, though both delivered a chorus of snores to lullaby you to sleep. I never reckoned on such a little person, producing noise of such volume. Aren't you tired, Uncle? asked Nan wearily. Oh, have no concern for me. I keep unorthodox hours. I shall rest later, Norbert assured her. Forgive me if I stray into the realms of nosy parkerdom here, and I'm sure I could hazard an informed guess, but may I ask what you were dreaming about? I can't remember, replied Nan. She guessed it to have been a nightmare because Nan felt just as exhausted as if she'd not slept at all. Why do you ask? Did I sleepwalk? No, no sleepwalking. It's just that you were constantly finching and uttering little yelps like a thing possessed. At one point this morning you gripped the sheet so tightly I had to prise your fingers from them or you would have ripped the covers off the bed. I suppose it takes no genius to divine what it was that might have been troubling you. 
I don't think it was about Dad or last night, but I can't remember, Nan said in confusion. The more Nan thought about it, the more she had the feeling that sleep had seemed like a threshold leading from one horror and misery to another. For the first time since the Elliots had arrived in Wanish Limpley, Nan found herself missing her mother. Not only did she desperately want someone else to shoulder the responsibility of looking after her family, but at that moment she craved to be a tearful, not quite 13-year-old girl in need of a parent to hug her. Suddenly, remembering the photograph Adrian had sent her all those days ago, Nan furtively removed it from her shirt pocket. She somehow felt reluctant to show her Uncle Norbert how vulnerable she was feeling, and so only peeked at it when he was not looking in her direction. It took three separate sly glances before she could confirm that someone must have been standing in the way of the light when the picture was taken, because a shadow had been cast over Nan in the photograph. She'd not noticed it before. The livid red blemish, which looked like fractures or the fronds of a river system within an incomplete circle, stood out brightly against the dark shadows. What Nan had previously taken to be a scornful, sneering expression she had been making towards the camera, she now realised was down to the image being so dark she could not make out her features clearly. It almost appeared as if the Nan in the picture had faded into the background whilst her mother remained clear and distinct. Whether it was due to the loss of her mother or her father, she was not sure, but Nan soon found the photograph painful to look at and so she put it away. Tristan slept for most of the day while Nan and Sally Croucher kept Hartley occupied. The little boy was content to play with them as long as he never left Russell's bedroom. Even in the midst of a game he was enjoying, his large eyes would constantly turn to the motionless figure of his father. In the middle of the day, when Hartley was taking his afternoon nap beside the still and heavily bandaged figure of his father, Nan asked Sally Croucher to keep an eye on her family as she wanted to pay a visit to Miss Muchley's library. The landlady was only happy to do so, as long as Nan took the parachute she offered her. As she made her way down the street towards the town square, people stopped Nan and uttered in respectful tones how great a man they deemed her father to be. Nan was not sure what the caretakers had told the town, but it was clear that many of the citizens were under the impression that Russell Elliot had somehow driven the sisters off single-handedly and gravely wounded one of them to boot. She tried to offer them a true account of what happened, but all she received from people were knowing sympathetic smiles and, I understand, I understand. Even Captain Mace, who came swaying up the street, stopped Nan and proclaimed to passers-by, Here, here, I always said, Par Elliot had the look of a great man about him. Can tell by the hands. Soon as I saw him, I said to myself, Them hands, they've seen toil. Not seafaring hands, granted, but not all are called. You take the sea away from me, well, why then I'm just napping, aren't I? Once again, the old sailor folded over with laughter at his own joke. Call me Atten, Atten's mate. His chuckles quickly descended into a revolting session of retching, which ended up with him first bringing up a great mouthful of mucus and finding nowhere to spit it out. He gulped hard and swallowed it all back down again, much to all the bystanders' disgust. The captain then finished making a roll-up cigarette and continued on his way up the road towards the painted pilchard, lurching from one side of the street to the other as if riding his own personal sea swell. More and more people wanted to express their respects to Nan as she neared the centre of the town. She was frankly sick of sympathy by the time she reached the town square and was only too happy to duck into Miss Muchy's library and art supplies to avoid any more consoling encounters. Miss Muchley's was empty again. 
and after a brief moment of scanning round the premises and wondering how the shopkeeper librarian ever made a living, Nan headed upstairs to the first floor. Fiction, history and entertainment, proclaimed the sign with the ornate lettering, as Nan climbed up the spiral staircase to the first floor. It might have been the same floor as Geography, Nature and Science, where she and Tristan had visited the day of Templeton Likely's funeral. Except Nan now understood that the rows and rows of deep bookshelves were all contained within canvases. A ginger cat padded out of the fiction section of the library and brushed up against Nan's legs. It was soon followed by a large tabby, which began to sharpen its claws on the bookcase beneath the comedy tragedy masks representing the theatre part of the entertainment section. Master Darcy, issued a haughty regal voice from fiction. Nan suddenly found she had been granted an unexpected audience with Miss Mutchley herself. Be off with you, shoot, Darcy, be elsewhere, the librarian proclaimed as she stepped into the main aisle, a feather duster under one arm and a can of polish with a rag in the other. The big tabby stalked off without the least sense of having been hurried by anyone. Oh, Hannah Elliot, what may I do for you? Afternoon, Miss Mutchley said Nan. I was hoping you could help me find out some of the history of Wanish Limpley. I would particularly like to read the diaries of Squire Wallace, I think it's called. The journal of Squire Wallace's, to be precise. Then you know. Yes, I suppose they would have had to tell you. Yes, Uncle Norbert and the other caretakers explained something about Wanish and Dab and Dab Harbour Town last night, but to be honest with you, I don't know how much of it I took in. Understandable. Miss Mutchley responded in a clipped way. By the way, the canvases you store the books in, are they living? Sorry, are they dynamic or inert? Oh, inert, inert. The last thing I want are some conquistadors turning up in my nature and science, although I doubt inert would stop the white boy. I insist upon no one and nothing interfering with the books without my express permission. So... You wish to know a little more about the history of Wanish Limpley. Most commendable. I'm just embarking on my spring clean. I start early, but it still takes me until autumn, but I'm sure I can spare you some time. If you take the aisle marked Ancient History and continue down it until you reach a reading desk, I shall fetch you your Squire Wallace and another book that might be pertinent to your inquiries. You're not worried by Rochester, are you? She said, gesturing towards the ginger cat. He's quite harmless. Before Nan could answer, Miss Mutchley strode off into the section labelled Local History. Nan tried to find the barrier separating the real world from that of the inert canvas, but it was impossible to locate. The two worlds blended into one so seamlessly, it seemed to Nan that she was stood not in one of the rooms of a small rickety shop, but in a huge hall with low ceilings, which contained miles and miles of books on either side of her. As she wandered down the aisle marked ancient history, Nan soon came to the conclusion that in the world outside the imp world, this library would be worth a fortune. Each aisle ran on for hundreds of yards, and each bookcase was a clear ten feet tall, packed with volumes of work. Many books looked ancient with unusual bindings. Some were large, bulky tomes with metal clasps and edging. And there were also pamphlets, sketchbooks, delicate parchments and fragile letters collected together in neat folders. Rochester accompanied Nan every step of the way down the long aisle of the library, the ginger cat weaving in and out of her legs in an affectionate manner. Nan felt she'd been walking through ancient history forever when she came across a plain wooden desk, complete with a brass lamp and two high-backed leather chairs. Facing the desk was a dark leather couch for more relaxed, informal reading. 
Nan sat down on the couch and scratched the back of Rochester's marmalade-coloured head while she waited for the librarian. The cat had hardly begun to purr before Miss Mutchy returned with a slim, cloth-bound volume. As I've already said, there is another book I suggest you take a look at as well, the librarian declared. However, I want your opinion on the latest version of that text, which I shall have to retrieve from upstairs. Start with the squire and I'll be back with you shortly. Miss Mutchley gave the slender book to Nan and strode off again with that peculiar, aristocratic way she had of throwing her head back as if pulled down by the weight of her own air. Nan gently examined the frayed and tattered journal, noticing that there was no writing on the cover to indicate what the book contained. She also noted that the book could not have been more than 60 pages long, 70 at most. The first page contained the ink inscription, The Journal of Benjamin Wallace, 17, Merchant Father and Recent Landowner in the Parish of Wanish Limpley. The writing was clear, large, bold, it contained a few mistakes and crossings out and was clearly not printed. Miss Mutchley had not given Nan a copy of Squire Wallace's journal as she had expected. The librarian had given her the actual account itself. Nan was holding the original book Squire Wallace himself had written in over 200 years before. She barely dared to turn the pages for fear of ripping the rough, grainy sheets of paper or tearing loose the thread stitches. There was no way Nan felt she could just sit back on the couch and casually skim through this priceless old book, so she gingerly couched the journal in her palms and set it down on the desk. Rochester, the ginger cat, jumped up on her lap as Nan sat down and carefully turned to the second page of Squire Wallace's journal. The first day of April 17. A beautiful spring day to begin building our new home. Some alignment of the heart and soul draws me to this place, like the swallows of my youth, who returned each spring to the same devoted barn to requisition it as a nursery. My daughter and my five boys have graciously consented to indulge me in my fantasy, and we have all embarked on our stone ark together. I have employed a small army of craftsmen and artisans, who all seem happy in their work and know it well. I fancy they are all mindful that they have worked in worse conditions and for worse payment. The earth has been levelled and compacted, and now the building begins. The 11th of April, 17. It has been my dream since a lad to build my own home, and now, I scarce say it unless speaking it curses the construction, but now it appears to be coming true. A more beautiful spot no man has laid eyes on. I should fair see my ships bound for the Orient ply their ways to and from port, and I shall look out for them as I do my dear children. We have fixed upon the house being built up on the cliffs against a small hill lying some several hundred yards back from the cliff edge. A run of moss stretches out before us, upon which my boys make great sport. In their spare time they ride horses, enact mock jousts, and play the fools on this sweep of lawn, much to the delight of both the craftsmen and myself. Nan found herself too preoccupied with the events of the previous night to focus on the account of the construction of a building. The intention, coming to the library, was to find out as much as possible about the sisters and the white boy. She craved specific knowledge about the beings that had committed such an unspeakable thing to her father. She began to skim through the journal and skipped past the many entries on the progress of the building work. The squire had logged some sightings of lights upon the island at night, which he thought to be smugglers or free traders, as he politely called them. But there was nothing of real interest for Nan until late April. April the 25th, 17. 
It is now late in the evening, approaching midnight as I write this. I have had to send for a doctor to attend to one of the carpenters. All we can make out between the poor fellow's mad, feverish ravings is that he made a trip to the island, Dab Island, the natives call it. There he encountered something he described as angels, beautiful, dark, wicked angels, but that was all we could learn. The doctor, a physician resident in the town several miles inland, assured me that the carpenter, Adam James, had not been drinking. Yet, at turns, his blood runs cold and then sometimes with a fever, and for some undiscovered reason he has lost the use of his legs. The doctor claims never have seen the like. Nan paused at this point. The situation in the journal was too familiar, too close to make for comfortable reading. After all, her father had been attacked only the night before. A chill broke over her. Nan was beginning to find the library a little lonely and eerie. Shelves and shelves of books about the works of dead men and women did not make for reassuring company. Miss Mutchley was nowhere to be seen, and only Rochester's purse sounded a note of life in that vast room. But even the cat seemed to be staring at her in a disconcerting way. There was something in the very isolation of her position that gave Nan a sense of having been in a similar situation quite recently. Strange fragments of memories inched their way back into her mind. At some point in her dream last night, she, or was it her, had been alone and afraid. Perhaps that was why she'd been flinching and yelping, as Norbert had said. But Nan had the feeling she did not want to remember the dream at that moment, and returned to the journal. April the 28th, 17. I've done nothing but sit by Adam James's bedside for the past three days, but today, alas, the poor carpenter lost his struggle for life. Adam was gone to God. A brief service was held up on the cliffs with all his fellow workers, and then poor Adam's remains were carried back to his hometown some forty mile away. The men say nothing to me directly, but I know they are superstitious folk, and the death of one of their number has hit them all hard. Personally, I know not what happened to our carpenter, but I do know that between the devil and the wickedness within us all, we have no need to invent ghouls and spectres. I should not wonder if Adam's angels came into being by the abuse of a little laudanum, or some such concoction. Skipping through large chunks of the journal again, Nan stopped at these entries. May the 19th, 17. I've just woken from the strangest, most vivid dream. I was visited by a child, a pale lad from the painting on the moor in my bedroom, who tells me quite coolly that Warnish Limpley, the island and the land my house is taking shape upon, are all his, and that we must pay homage to him with the sacrifice of lives. I have dismissed the dream from my mind, but it was most vivid. May the 27th, 17. The child has appeared again, but with more menace this time. He manifests himself as a lack or want of things, a boy of blinding white. His features remain indistinct, but, if pushed, I would say he is unremarkable in appearance. The boy emerged from a grove of trees on the edge of the painting, and he approached a hole in the ground. I was in my room in the pilchard. He was on some desolate scrap of moorland scrub, yet I swear to feeling the wind from the moor upon my face. He demanded his blood sacrifice again. Three lives. Any three. I may even choose those to be sacrificed, but I have until the September equinox to deliver them. With that said, he descended into the hole and disappeared. The wind died and the painting fell still. Naturally, I waited for the dream to end, but imagine my horror that came with the knowledge that I was already awake.
Nan suddenly found herself staring hard at the journal, as if her gaze had locked onto it. Rochester the cat found Nan's intense stare, not to his liking, and leapt from her lap to scurry away. Sudden impatience with the squire took hold of Nan. She felt it was wrong to dawdle about reading a diary when she should be doing something for her father. But as Nan dropped the book on the table, the journal fell open on the last page. It was not an entry from Squire Wallace. There were no more of those. But halfway down the page was a small red circle with a slash and curving lines crisscrossing it like a river system, and above that a single line written in a different hand. Squire Wallace died this day, along with all his line. Nan gently closed Squire Wallace's journal and mulled over the parts of the account she had read. She made a promise to herself to read the entire diary, one day, but not at this time. Something about that last line so gripped Nan that when she finally removed her gaze from the book and leant back in the chair, it was with a shock that she realised Miss Mutchley was now sitting beside her. I was remembering how the squire had had a profound effect on me too when I first read his journal, the librarian began with a soft, distant voice. So many good people have been lost. You see, the canvas is both a gift and a curse. Miss Mutchley's preoccupied expression vanished after a moment's reflection. You could not have read the entire account in such a short span of time, surely. The librarian did not seem to want a response to her question, though, but slid another book across the desk along with a pad of blank paper and a pencil. The answers to other questions you might want to know should be in there, said Miss Mutchley, getting up from the table and gliding away. And if they aren't, do tell me or make notes, for I need to know. Miss Mutchley, who wrote the last line in the squire's book? The librarian stopped, turned on her heel and coasted back to the table. Picking up the journal, Miss Mutchley opened the final page of the account and read the last line out loud. Squire Wallace died this day along with all his line. Do you know what this small red circle laced with line indicates? No, replied Nan. It's a signature. You may have seen something like it before, perhaps. Nan racked her memory. Now she thought about it, Nan realised that she had indeed seen something similar before, in the corner of every one of the forbidden canvases in Norbert's rooms. It's the signature of the white boy, isn't it? It is. Undoubtedly, it was he who killed the squire, him or one of his minions. The white boy's canvas creations are often easy to spot due to their exquisite craftsmanship. He is responsible for the finest paintings I have ever seen. Yes, I saw them in Norbert's rooms. Norbert Drew possesses only a small part of the white boy's collection. You should view some of the white boy's other creations. Such works, such sublime, astonishing works. Her voice took on a distant quality again for a moment. As I was saying, the white boy's work can be detected due to its state of near perfection. Rather, I should say, one used to be able to spot his pictures because of their perfection. Yet, in order to lure hapless victims into entering canvases they believe to be safe, he has begun to create paintings not worthy of his skill. Hence the sporadic and frankly erratic bans on using the canvases that are sometimes imposed on us by the caretakers. Nevertheless, in all the white boy's paintings, this circular symbol may be seen in one form or another. It might be the crest emblazoned upon an ancient blade, or the orb of the sun setting reflected in a tropical sea, but it will be there. Every dynamic canvas must bear the signature of its creator, even his. 
Nan traced the final words in the journal with her finger and found the shape of the signature came easily to her. Questions soon began to flood Nan's mind. Miss Matchley, how has anyone survived in this place with such a threat since the days of Squire Wallace? The town was deserted when Adrian and Templeton discovered it. My uncle and Mr Likely found Wanish Limply. Yes, rediscovered it would be closer to the truth. Nan thought on this for a moment. And there was no one here. Not a soul. Why? Miss Matchley ran her duster through the fingers and sighed. My stock answer to that, Hannah Elliot, would be to say that you're in a library and therefore have access to a vast resource of information. Why not find out yourself? Nan suddenly recalled how the librarian intimidated her. With that said, however, and with the events of last night still fresh in our minds, I will divulge that your questions can be categorised under the same answer, largely unknown. For some reason, we cannot create a canvas to lead us back into any time in Wanish Limpley's history. Well, no one has been successful thus far. There are examples of normal paintings from those times, but nothing dynamic or living. Of course, this means that we cannot learn of Wanish Limpley's past firsthand. I will thank you for refraining from bending back the spine of my books too far. Sorry, but there must have been some local people living nearby who knew some of the history, asked Nan. I mean, as far as the outside world knew, the town just disappeared. That sort of thing must create legends, at least. We do not know if Wanish Limpley's neighbours believe the town to have just disappeared. You're forgetting that the huge canvas covering us is one of the white boys and can depict anything he wishes. Perhaps it showed a town in decline until there was little left other than a few fishing families eking out a miserable existence. Or maybe a fire consumed the town shown in the canvas. Although a supposed flood followed by a massive landslip is the most likely reason. What we can learn is that parish records from the surrounding district tell us that since the 18th century, fewer and fewer people moved into the surrounding area. Local folklore was rife with fear and superstition centred on this area of the coast, even the fishing village of Janus Key to the south of the island dwindled, and the villagers feared the land to the north of them. Therefore, when the army decided they needed a new practice range to test their weapons and train their troops during the Second World War, this area presented itself as the obvious choice, with so few people needing to be relocated. Military barracks aside, Wanish Limpley and Dab Island do not have another neighbour for an approximately 20-mile radius. That fact suits us. It is also our firm belief that for the last 60 years, few in the outside world have known that Wanish Limpley ever existed at all including the army. Nan mulled over this new information. Miss Mutchley, uh, more questions? This is becoming an interrogation. Will I need a lawyer? Head thrown back, Miss Mutchley began to stride off. Read the book, Hannah Elliot. Last one before I read the book, please, I promise. Miss Mutchley halted, seemed to compose herself and then turned back towards the desk. A raise of the eyebrows permitted Nan to proceed. If there was no one but Jeff the Dodo in Wanish Limpley when my uncle and Templeton likely discovered it, what was it, 30 years ago? Miss Mutchley nodded. About 33 years ago, yes. Then your question is why are there so many people here now, seeing that the phenomenon is kept a secret? A fair question, and as it happens, not one that is thoroughly addressed in that book. We don't know why people are drawn to this place. 
But it seems that the canvas itself attracts people here. They find us. When I found this place, I had no idea why I kept returning for walking holidays in this part of the country, or why I always headed in this direction along the coastal path, or why I always returned to my charming little rented cottage with a sense of being unfulfilled. Three separate autumns I holidayed near here. Three separate autumns, until I found Wanish Limpley. A wistful dreaminess in her voice suggested Alison Mutchley's thoughts had drifted away, but suddenly the librarian snapped back into a more formal tone. Within two years of Adrian and Templeton discovering this place, there were already well over a hundred residents. Protocols had to be introduced. Within ten years, it was over a thousand. People are just drawn here. Read the book. It will explain all this and more in greater detail. Then do please give me your opinion. Now, excuse me, won't you? These bookshelves don't clean themselves. Nan watched the librarian glide away again and then turned to the new book in her hands. It was a larger, weightier, more modern volume than Squire Wallace's journal and bore the title The Forging of Modern Wanish Limpley by Alison Mutchley. The lie of Wanish Limpley is such that when a couple of truant students first followed a dodo scrabbling back beneath a giant canvas that mimicked the landscape around it exactly, they believed the abandoned town they found there to be in Atlantis, thrown up from the sea floor. The bird was Geoffrey, present-day pet of the Crouchers at the time of writing. The two students, Adrian Elliot and Templeton Lightley. Nan finished the first paragraph and came to a halt. She had not forsaken reading Squire Wallace's journal to launch herself into another book. But there was a problem. In the corner of her eye, Nan became conscious that she was being watched. In an attempt to gauge the reaction to her book, Miss Mutchley had forsaken her dusting and had hidden herself behind the nearest set of shelves from where she peered at Nan through a book-shaped hole. Is there something wrong? asked the librarian defensively when she realised that she'd been spotted. No, it's just that you're distracting me, replied Nan. Oh, of course, most rude, so sorry. As soon as she was certain that Miss Mutchley had gone for good this time, Nan turned to the chapter index of the book and began searching for any elements concerning the white boy and the sisters. There were whole chapters on the construction and reconstruction of the town, the beginnings of new commerce on the island, the building of the theatre, the first limited attempts to integrate with the outside world the few imp reactions to the phenomena of the canvas, as well as a long section on the arrival of many of the present-day citizens to the community. Most of it made for reasonably interesting reading, but Nan was only skipping through pages looking for one or two references to the white boy. She would happily plough through the book some other time, but not today. Today she read with a purpose, and that was to find out as much as she could on the creatures that had attacked her father. It soon became clear to Nan that the book was unfinished. A comprehensive shot at covering the white boy had been pencilled in as chapters three and four, but both had yet to be started. Also, the qualities of the caretakers amounted to little more than notes written in pencil on the last pages of the book. Taking up the pad and pencil in front of her, Nan copied some of the details down at random. Number one. Caretakers are responsible for protecting the community, policing the canvas and curbing its influence on the outside world. The Caretaker Council may draw upon the help of certain members of the Wamish and Dabs communities, including the Brothers Havoc, Dr Ernest Beamish, Luke Lucas, Sally Croucher, the Fordsley family and Alison Mutchley. There are other names too, but Nan did not know them. 2. Not all caretakers can paint or draw. 
Among the caretakers, Adrian Elliott and Moulton Shoreditch are considered the best in these fields. Three, Norbert Drew catalogues the collection of dynamic canvases. Four, A, Kat Sanson and Norbert Drew are deemed to be the most sensitive at detecting changes within the canvases. 4B, Kat Sanderson knows the dynamics of the canvas better than anyone. 5. Kat Sanderson is considered to be the finest wielder of the Tetch, the caretaker staff, and invented the concept with Adrian Elliott. Other fine wielders of the Tetch are Gilbert Croucher, Moulton Shoreditch, Corvus Rift and Van Dieven. NB, in all things artistic, the white boy is superior to anybody. Having gleaned everything she wanted from the book for the moment, Nan found herself frustrated at the lack of information regarding the things she wanted to know about most of all. Tearing her scrap of paper from the pad, Nan picked up Miss Mutchley's book and ran off to find the author herself. Miss Mutchley, Nan began after finding the librarian deep in fiction, last night Uncle Norbert said the sisters were people the white boy had once captured and were now his servants. You cannot have read my entire text in that short space of time. No, no, I haven't. I'm sorry, Nan replied. Librarian gave a crestfallen nod. I will read your book, I promise you. But please don't ask me to do it now, Miss Mutchley. Not after last night. You see, I came to see you today because I was looking for anything to do with the sisters and the white boy. I noticed that your book doesn't have many details on them. Indeed, chapters three and four. I must have written a dozen different versions of those chapters. She paused. Do you understand the word ineffable, Hannah? No, sorry. Ineffable means incapable of being expressed in words. I find aspects of the white boy and the sisters ineffable. Miss much she suddenly snatched her book back from Nan's hands. If you want information about the sisters, you would do better asking Cad Sanderson. She's acknowledged authority on all the darker influences within the canvases. I see. And where? On Dab Island, beyond Dab Harbour Town. Nan thanked Miss Mutchley and began to race out of fiction. The librarian was forced to shout after her. But the bits you did read, did you find the style of writing easy? Is the book entertaining or just a dull waste of paper? Hannah? Hannah! But Nan was soon out of the building and heading in the direction of Dab Island. The two books were probably fascinating, but as Nan had explained to Miss Mutchley, her true intention in coming to the library had been to learn as much as possible about the sisters. If Cat Sanderson was the expert on them, then Cat was the person with whom they would talk. Unfortunately, Nan had no idea where the caretaker lived on the island. The causeway was empty of anyone, even Van Dieven for once, and the streets of Dab Harbour Town looked just as bare. Only in the harbour did Nan see a fisherman in a dinghy heading out into open water. Excuse me, Nan shouted above the din of the outboard engine. The fisherman saw rather than heard her shouting at him and adjusted his engine so it dawdled and spluttered with only slightly less racket. Could you tell me where Cat Sanderson lives, please? Cat the caretaker, the fisherman hollered back. Nan nodded. Aye, through the harbour, take the path yonder to the west side of the village. Follow it for a spell till you come across the first cottage on the cliff's edge. That's Cat's Lodging. It's only just past the ridge there. If you come to the barrier, you've gone too far. Oh, by the by, your father did grand. Nan thanked the fisherman for the directions and made her way across the cobbled quayside, through the steep right-angled street grid of Dab Harbour Town and followed a path leading up onto the western cliffs. 
The path was on the opposite side of the island to the route she'd taken with Tristan to reach the theatre, but the scrub, gorse bushes and exposed rock all looked the same. Yet, in daylight, the island seemed to have a different character. It appeared less like the craggy giant of the night defying the sea, and more like a place whose careless beauty had come into bloom, just before it was entirely eaten away by ever-hungry waters. Yet, whether night or day, Nan found the place eerie. This sense of eeriness was increased when Nan turned the bend and found once again that she recognised the place in front of her. A little distance away, lying just off the coastal path, was a cosy stone cottage overlooking the calm sea. She'd seen the same setting hundreds, many thousands of times before, for it was the scene in the painting that hung for years beside their front door at home. Gazing further up the path, Nan spied a second cottage a few hundred yards away, and this too had a sense of something familiar about it. Even the odd stunted trees on the fringe of the hill were no strangers to Nan, although she had no clue why. The constant feeling of knowing yet not knowing places in Wanish and Dab left Nan feeling as if she'd stolen someone else's dreams or memories, but had no idea of their significance or to whom they belonged. Dismissing these strange sensations, Nan marched up to the front door of the first cottage and tapped on it gently. There was no answer. Trying the handle, Nan was surprised to find that the door opened. There was clearly great trust in your neighbours on Dab Island. However, Nan could not bring herself to simply waltz into someone's house uninvited and decided to circle the cottage for signs of life. To the rear of the cottage was a large open window with a wonderful view of the sea to the west of the island. In fact, when Nan stood with her back to the window and did not turn either to the left or the right, it was a landscape completely empty of any vestige of human life. The cottage itself looked small but snug. Nan could easily see why anyone would fall in love with the place and suffered a few cramped conditions for such a property. Peering in through the open window, she saw a neat house with all things necessary to comfortable living. But there was no sign of anything personal or anything of the history of the owner. Cat's Cottage had no photographs, no pictures, no ornaments and no nostalgic mementos. Only as she was squinting downwards using her head to block the glare of the sun did Nan spot Cat Sanderson asleep upon a sofa beneath the window. Nan could not bring herself to wake the dozing caretaker and decided she did not want to be caught nosing about anyway, so she eased her head back out through the open window. Unfortunately, the skin on her fingers made a squeaking sound as she removed them from the glass. Even before her eyes opened, Cat Sanderson flicked open her staff and the prison blade was lunged through the open window towards Nan's throat. Yet, at the last moment, the caretaker pulled the weapon away. Then, Nan looked into Cat Sanderson's eyes and froze, paralysed with shock and fear. There were no whites to Cat's eyes now, no colour at all, just dark pools, black voids where something human should be. Nan realised that she was looking not into the eyes of a caretaker, but a sister. Nan did not wait for a second chance to meet death, but ran, ignoring Cat Sanderson's pleas to Wait, Nan, please, wait! In an instant, Nan understood why Cat Sanderson possessed her height and too perfect to be true beauty. She realised why this sister, masquerading as a caretaker, was impeccably proportioned and had neither a blemish to her skin nor a hair out of place. Cat looked as if she'd been designed rather than born. She belonged not to the human race, but to the world of the white poor. A hundred yards away from the cottage and Nan looked back. 
She was surprised to see no sign of pursuit, and it was only then that Nan dared to hope she might make it back to safety in time. Then she remembered the parachute on her back and frantically pulled at the ripcord. The canvas jolted her back as it spread out into the air. There was a feeling of being sucked into it, and Nan found herself hurtling out of the gateway into the bar of the painted pilchard. A sister, she managed to pant. Adrian and Norbert were sat at a table huddled in discussion. It took them only a moment to arm their staffs and pull Nan behind them as they waited for the sister to appear. Are you sure it was just the one, Nan? asked Norbert after a few moments when Cat had not appeared. They usually attack as a group. I only saw her. Where? asked Adrian, flexing his left arm, which still seemed slightly slow in its movements. On the island. Cat Sanderson. Cat Sanderson's a sister. Both men hesitated and then withdrew their weapons. She is, I swear, pleaded Nan. I saw her eyes. I'm telling you that Cat Sanderson's a sister. Nan, there's something we should have told you began Norbert, but at that moment Cat Sanderson slipped through the gateway with normal human eyes. Don't be fooled by her eyes, cried Nan. They must be lenses. Yes, they are lenses, Nan, replied Cat. We'll attack her. She turned to her uncles, but they made no movement. Please, you've got to believe me. Norbert stepped towards his niece. Nan, we do believe you, he replied. It's just that, well, the thing is, we already know about Cat. You see, she used to be a sister. But Cat's not one now. She held one of those prison blades to my throat. That's true, Cat answered, and I'm sorry for that, Nan. It was just that I was having a dream that the white boy was closing in on me, and I'm afraid that when you startled me, my reactions were automatic. Please, forgive me, I wouldn't hurt or scare you intentionally. And why the eyes? cried Nan. I change my appearance in order not to alarm or disturb people, but it hurts my eyes to sleep with the lenses. Please believe her, Nan, said Norbert. I would trust Cat with my life. I would as well, chimed in Adrian. Cat has sacrificed much to stay one of us. She can never leave this town or a canvas for more than moments. Be kind to her. Nan backed away from all of them as if she just unmasked a dreadful conspiracy. I don't care how much you fooled them into believing you're something else, Nan spat, staring directly at Cat Sanson's false eyes. If I had a weapon, I'd kill you this instant. I saw what your sisters did to my father. Nothing that wicked and unnatural and evil could ever change for the better. Don't you ever go near my father or brothers again. Cat Sanderson nodded slowly. As you wish, Nan, she replied and the caretaker sadly stepped aside to let Nan pass. Both men would have lost to find anything to say. Mm -hmm.